Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. Happy holidays and welcome to Tales of Malaphone. I am your announcer, refreshed, and back with you for more shaggy dog stories and angry, hairless cat stories. It is the festive season, the one time of year where the horrors lurking around every corner garner you with a smile or an abusing hat before ending your life. One thing that the festive period is not without is regulations. Where would we be without a firm guiding hand from the law? The Guild would like to thank everyone for abiding with requests to keep your decorations away until December 1st. Putting out decorations early is extremely frowned upon. Market stalls selling holiday trinkets in October were identified and dealt with swiftly. Houses with festive decorations in November had a guardsman posted outside. They were instructed to arrange a cordon to look disapprovingly through the window and mutter until the offended items were taken down. Further compliance is advised for taking down decorations. These should be removed no later than December 31st. We'll be watching you. So, business as usual. To keep you distracted from the mysterious chittering noise coming from behind... Um, no, inside your Yuletide tree in the corner of your room, a story I like to call The Coming Storm. The Coming Storm, October 6th. The bayou was strangely quiet and still. Lilith brushed aside a branch, heavy with frost, and walked across the thin film of ice covering the murky water. The ice could not have supported the weight of any normal person or beast, but it gave her little concern. Even the long blades of grass, covered in a sheath of white, hardly swayed at her passing. No footprint on the soft, still unfrozen soil marked her movement through the marsh. The bayou gave her, Zoraida, and many of the Neverborn natives shelter because the humans found it so difficult to navigate and remember their way. Only the damnable Ortegas seemed willing to hunt through the wetlands, and they were increasingly proficient at navigating the difficult region. Of course, that was before the event. Since the Red Star fell, the Ortegas were strangely absent from the bayou when the somewhat drier forests north of it near their own compound. Lilith's breath froze in a fog before her as she paused to survey the surroundings. She chastised herself for allowing her mind to wander, brief though it was. Thinking of the Ortegas distracted her, and this close to Zoraida's hut, she knew that even she could not afford to lose focus. The three thorn elms were to her left as they should be, but the bayou's single towering jasmine, supposed to be on the right of them, was nowhere to be seen. She cursed silently. Where was the jasmine tree? Rare and fragile in normal conditions, its thriving in the bayou was an impossibility that fortunately marked the last stage of the journey to Zoraida's hidden home. 
She scanned the foliage in each direction from the three thorn elms and even stepped side to side to see if they were hidden by other trees. Especially with their branches weighted by the frost, she thought the landmarks might be further obscured than normal. She couldn't see it. But then the scent of the jasmine flowers caught her, sweet and soft. She looked up. Looming directly above her stood the jasmine tree, its tiny flowers white and gleaming in the frost that would surely wither them. She cursed again, blaming only herself for falling into Zoraida's trap. She spun, rethinking her position in the swamp, and saw with her mind rather than her eyes, for they were never to be trusted this close to Zoraida's shack. She thought of a position more than fifty yards behind her, where both the three elms would stand to her left, and the jasmine to her right, and in between would be the hut. Sure enough, past the thin trunk of the flowering tree, there before her were the thick stilts that raised the hut above the water of the swamp that rose and fell so severely by the passing of Malifaux's moons. Sighing as she stepped past the tree, she had to acknowledge Zoraida's power once more. To other never-born, Lilith was known as the master of Malifaux, able to bend and reshape nature to fit her needs. But Zoraida's power confounded her, and not for the first time. Humans had been in Malifaux only four short years, but they told tales of Zoraida that made her somehow more feared than either Lilith or even Pandora. Even though Zoraida had tormented the humans far less than either of the two seemingly younger never-born women. Odd, too, that only a few of the settlers had even come into contact with her in the swamp, and she had left them each alive. Lilith found it remarkable that she held such power of fear over them. They told tales of the hut of the witch that walked the marsh on giant chicken legs, and how the hag was so evil that she wanted to steal all the children away and eat them up. Of course, that was a tale of warning the more cruel of the adults told their children to keep them from going into the forest or swamp. It was sinister, and she was sure Pandora exploited that fear when she could. The hut did not walk about on its own. That would be ridiculous. But for anyone that found the hut once, it could certainly seem that it must be able to walk away if you tried to find it again and never could. That was her power. She turned a person's thoughts against them, turning them away from the hut in confusion. Lola thought she had only a brief thought of the Ortegas, but realized now that Zoraida's formidable hex probably had her repeat the same thought over and over as she walked past the three elms and nearly past the jasmine. She smiled. She would have walked right past the stilts without ever looking up to see the hut, thinking them trees as they had thick vines and grasses growing over them. She didn't take her eyes from the stilts suspending the hut above the dark soil of a mound just below it. She thought only of Zoraida and the subject of their meeting. It should have taken only a few moments to traverse the final distance between her and the hut, but it seemed to take much longer. Zoraida's voice called out from the rocking chair near the edge of the rickety porch. Ah, right on time, she called. Didn't get turned around in a swamp, did you? She cackled high and grating. Lilith knew the old woman had watched her approach with glee. Probably focused even more of her mystical twisting of obfuscation against her. Zoraida no doubt reveled in the confusion she could impose on a powerful being such as herself. 
Lilith wrapped the fabric of spiritual energy around herself. Thicker here in the swamp, where life and death occurred in far greater magnitude than in the city where man denounced, even suppressed the natural ebb and flow of those energies. There was a reason they said she was the master of Malifaux. She extended her will and found one of the dark crows perched on the rail just beyond the old woman. In a snap, she and the crow were transposed, shifting in space. The crow fluttered in surprise where Lilith had been, and Lilith, now on the rail besides the rider, leaning against the support post with one leg outstretched, said, Not at all, in answer to the rider's question, which made the old woman jump and shriek. Wide-eyed, she turned to Lilith, and regaining her wits and realizing what Lilith had done, cackled again, her laughter loud and echoing throughout the swamp around them. For one such as Lilith, Zoraida seemed to age before her eyes, wrinkling, withering, and dying with every breath. It had been only several months since she had last sat with the crone, yet Zoraida seemed so different to her, tired and weak. It was such a shame that so much power could be contained in something so brief and fragile. Not for the first time did she marvel at how a human could rise up so quickly to amass a power rivaling her own. Winter has come early to the bayou, Lilith said as the hag's laughter subsided. Yes, it's quieted the croaking frogs. Will they survive the cold? This, Zoraida said. Waving her gnarled hand, coarse and calloused on the fingertips and across the thick pad of her open palm. No, the coming storm. Zoraida grew grave, thinking on it and looking out into the darkness of the swamp. Oh, she said, they'll suffer. They're not ready. This cold should be a month off at least. Silurids, frogs, and gators. The gremlins, too. They follow the seasons and prepare for the next. Always on the future, the instincts are. I predict they'd suffer too greatly in the storm that comes. But they adapt, if they trust those instincts. She drew the worn pelt around her torso, already wrapped in several layers of old canvas she used to construct her many dolls from. It's a shame, Lilla said. It's not their fault and they'll suffer the most. The humans holed up and cozy in Malifaux will hardly notice the cold came earlier than normal, that it's more severe than in previous years. Will they know of December at all? Zoraida rocked quietly, thinking on it, looking out into the swamp that protected her. She might be safe from an accidental visit from humans stumbling upon her, but December was different. Each of the tyrant entities posed a very real threat, for they would consume everything. Lilith continued, saying, A rider has come. A dead rider, from out of the necropolis. Yes. Yes. And it wasn't the first. Lilith was surprised. One came to me, before the event. Its sword glowed like the sun but could not penetrate the depth of the shadow beneath its cow, even when it held a sword beneath its face. It spoke, but I could not understand it, and thought at first it had come to slay me. It stood before me for only a minute, maybe two. The sword changed as it spoke, 
reflecting a sun on its surface that passed in seconds rather than hours. Even starlight and the twin moons reflected on its surface as it spoke, though it was mid-morning and the sky was obscured by the trees and a thick fog that surrounded us. I was not aware that the hooded rider had come, Lilith admitted. I always assumed it would come to me. It was foretold that it would come to the Neverborn, so it might as well have come to you. I am not Neverborn, Zoraida said. Semantics. You are in spirit. Not in blood. Yet the hooded rider came to you. Why does it stir now? she asked. Zoraida shared her bewilderment, clicking her tongue as she thought. I've spent many hours since our encounter scrying on that. It came with plague. Awakened when it consumed that vile human that found it in the necropolis. I told you we should have walled it up better. Zoraida looked at her accusationally. You did. You also agreed that we'd taken enough precautions to secure the necropolis. You protected it just as you did your hut here. True. No human could have found it by walking toward it, even by accident. The hex would have turned them. Yet man found a way. The riot, the burning building that fell. It carried the humans straight to plague in the water, filled with man's own waste and filth. You believed we would stop the coming of the end. Zoraida nodded. We have twisted the threads of fate until they are knotted. First the tyrants, of course, then us. Now the humans. With each that I unravel, it seems I create four more. Man did not find a way to bring the end. Fate did. We cannot control it. Cannot stop it. How could any man even have survived that deluge in sewer? Battered for miles beneath the water like that. Could you have, Lilith? No. Fate is active and alive. It has brought the end despite our meager attempts to sway it. Man meddles with the power haphazardly, almost reveling in the ability to twist fate. They nodded. Did you make a mistake in opening the breach again? Hard to say, Zoraida said, thinking on it. Their world crumbles in decay. The spirits suck dry. But man is as resilient and full of life as the creatures in this swamp. She smiled, making the connection. And if they can trust their instincts, perhaps change all of this. Or they bring the end. Yes, perhaps. December stirred, and when the breach opened, he rose, finding a vessel in that girl. Plague, too, rose through man, Lilith added, and that lunatic Seamus actually tried to raise the grave spirit. Now the fabric surrounding this world has been torn. Spirits are no longer trapped on the other side. The plagued nearly succeeded in ascending. Zoraida dismissed the notion with a wave. He's simple-minded. He didn't know what he was doing. Didn't consider the power of the other tyrants to keep him from succeeding. Especially the grave spirit. 
It's a wily one, that's for sure. I sense its hand in thwarting the plagued. The resurrectionists are so dangerous because they don't even understand the power right at their fingertips. They haven't even thought about the spiritual power because they're so trapped by their own perception of self in the physical. That may change now. Yes. The Three Kingdoms girl. They may figure it out. They're just so used to thinking that the men are the stronger of the genders. Imagine if fate had given the plague you or that damned Ortega girl. Zoraida rolled her eyes. Plague was stopped, but the others continue to rise and meddle in the affairs of men. The Red Star has fallen, releasing the imprisoned. Zoraida rocked gently, stroking the head of one of her makeshift dolls. Lilith found it amusing that it seemed to hug her hand as she petted. It has already chosen a vessel, too, I fear. Lilith nodded in agreement. Volcanic activity in the Badlands to the west. The Badlands? I wasn't expecting that. What's left in the Badlands for him? Lilith laughed. You, taken by surprise. So this cloud has a silver lining after all. Zoraida smiled, too. Everything is clouded, hard to read. So will she stop the Red Prisoner or help him ascend? We thought that Dor's sacrifice would strengthen the dam and hold them all at bay. Dor is perceptual, always teetering between this world and that, but it was not enough. I fear your gamble has only made the end come sooner. I've been trying to tell you, Lilith, fate is alive. Our presence may have awakened the slumbering tyrants earlier than you expected, but your attempts to keep them asleep, imprisoned, was nearing an end as the Neverborn numbers began to swell again. They exist where there is life, and they wish to ascend as they always have, to fulfill their desire for immortality, godhood. If not for the humans, we would have brought them and fought them alone. Consider the changes to the Silurid and Gremlin over the last several hundred years. The vegetation, too. I think the gamble was necessary. The humans are strong. They embrace change so quickly. But their power is being used by the tyrants. We will find those strong enough to oppose them. Pandora's part. Speaking of which, why is she not here? More twisting of fate's threads. She must deal with candy. Another surprise. Another obstacle. Who could have seen this coming? Candy was not ready to grow. Not for many decades. She could have been such a powerful tool and resource. A damn event. Wasn't supposed to come so soon. She is still powerful, still useful, but not in control, not of herself and certainly not by us. She's like your sister. Lilith winced, ashamed at the mention of Nakima. Zoraida continued. She revels in the pain she inflicts. She loses sight of her purpose. We need the humans alive. 
We need them strong, not broken. The breach is another abomination, Lilith said, twisting the natural law. Every time we've sought to fix it, to repair the damage to the natural law, we've only fueled the coming end. Should we not close the gate now? More and more of those despicable creatures continue to pour through every day. Children stomping through the flowers, unaware of their own destruction. Maybe it is time for that, Zoraida agreed. Everything is happening so fast, faster than I imagined. It always does, Lilith suggested. What about that man that leads them? Could he not be used as we had intended for Dor, to block the tear in the fabric between this world and the ether? He has his own desire for great power, that is true. But he is a man that does not believe in sacrifice of himself to get it. We need another. What about Nightmare? He has aligned himself with the boy from across the breach. They twist reality like you twist fate. Zoraida turned to regard her and the suggestion. It had merit. She nodded, and a smile upon her face accentuated the great many wrinkles. Yes, he plans his own ascension. We should confront that one. Not you. He won't respond to you. He doesn't acknowledge your right to the Neverborn. He would certainly respect my right to appeal to him. But I probably should not either, she said. For all his power to reshape the physical world, he only understands the psychological. Everything points back to Pandora. The hag cackled. The girl is being tested. The event nearly did her in. She's gotten too familiar with the humans. They're getting in her head as she gets into theirs. Lilith stood and walked to the edge of the wooden porch and turned to Zoraida before jumping down. I'll find her. I'll get her to confront Nightmare. See if we can catch up to Fate's machinations before it's too late. She regretted leaving a sensation she felt more and more. Will I see you again? she asked. You've asked me that the last several times we've parted, Zoraida said dismissively. I have years left. Years. Years might as well be seconds. I just met you and you were a capricious girl. Pshaw. That was well over a hundred years ago. Seems like yesterday. You were beautiful. More beautiful than you. Don't get carried away. Lilith winked at her and was gone, heading to the city to find Pandora. Time and fate had moved faster than them, and they would pay for their every moment of doubt and hesitation. Brian Tuttle rounded the corner of Gorgeous Street into the alley between Mrs. Dillard's orphanage and Richard's apothecary, taking the familiar shortcut back to his bakery. He had tarried too long at the orphanage, surprising the little ones with some fresh tarts. In his haste, a loaf of bread rolled out of his basket, and he quickly picked it up, discreetly brushing it off, sure no one had seen him drop it. He was wrong. Candy was just ahead, and she said to him, Mistakes happen, huh? He yelped and stopped short, clutching the rest of the loaves from the morning's delivery against his chest. He hadn't seen her there, of course. But his surprise came not so much from her presence in the typically unused alley as much as by how she looked. 
Leaning against the wall, with her back slightly arched, she was every bit as tall as him, but long and thin. Pretending she wasn't aware of her bare leg, she lifted her foot slowly along the brick wall. Her stocking pulled tight to her knee while the other had drooped to her ankle. Her skirt was many times too small for her, and covered only the upper half of her thigh. Tuttle hardly noticed the sheen of her skin was more smooth and white, like cold porcelain, than the creamy tan of a normal girl. Her exposed legs and the tight shirt that lifted above her navel with each breath were positively scandalous. Even a woman of ill repute would not be so outlandishly attired, and he took a reluctant step toward her, intent upon chastising her for her lewd presentation. Slack-jawed and bulging eyes, he was too dumbstruck to speak. Candy twirled a lock of her flaxen hair, smiling at him innocently. Her stance and mannerisms were that of a girl many years younger, and if not for the subtle curves of her body, he might have sworn she was a child. With wide eyes and gentle smile, she said, I'm so jealous of those orphans. He did sincerely intend to reprimand her for her deplorable state of dress. He'd get to it. To start, however, he said simply, Oh, I'm sure they've not heard that before. He laughed nervously. Why should you be jealous of them? Oh, to have someone like you, you know, she said slowly around a slight smile, to bring them tasty treats. I have a bit of a sweet tooth myself. She raised one of her sweets to her mouth. Sweat thickened upon his chest and beneath his arms, yet his mouth went dry. He could not look the girl in the eyes, but everywhere he looked made him more and more uncomfortable, as his roving eyes could only fall upon some part of her that should be forbidden for him to see. Oh, his voice trembled, I just do what I can. His collar was suddenly very tight, he realized, choking him. Is that so? Well, you are a giving person, aren't you? He said nothing but gulped hard. He was having difficulty thinking. Every thought he had was of the girl, far too young to deserve the thoughts of a lecherous man like him. I'm kind of an orphan, too, she went on. Do you have anything left to give me, mister? He shook and his eyes fluttered. She was there in his mind, and he was reaching out for her. The girl was not wrong for how she dressed, how she looked. It was his fault, he thought. He was to blame. A person should be responsible for himself. Her narrow hand fell upon his shoulder, and his gentle weight was enough to push him to his knees. The loaves he carried tumbled before him, and his eyes fluttered, too heavy now to open. In his mind's eye he looked down upon himself from above. He saw a man brought to his knees before the presence of a young woman, too innocent and harmless to understand that her developing body could affect a grown man so profoundly. It was his affair to manage, and he failed. It was his responsibility to control the lustful urges that compelled him more like an animal than a productive member of society. He struck himself with an open palm, hard enough to rack his whole body, and then struck again, splitting his lip. Candy smiled. She reached out and took his hand in both of hers and leaned toward him. Close, she said in a deep voice, Now, now, no need to be so angry. She held his hand in both of hers and pulled it to her cheek. 
to have it caress her jaw with his knuckles. He shook visibly, his eyes rolling up into his head. She had not been a real woman for long, and she reveled in the amplification of her power. She had no desire for the pathetic creature before her, of course, but she pulled his face to hers, kissing him passionately. She could feel his pulse beating frantically in his neck. She released him, and he gibbered incoherently, eyes rolled back and foam dribbling from the corner of his mouth. In his mind he was desperately whipping and beating himself for his own despicable thoughts. He could not punish the stain of sin away, and had such deep self-loathing that he could only desperately continue to berate and punish himself. Ashamed for what he could think, and ashamed he had hidden it so deeply for so long. She removed his baking cap and ran her fingers through his thin hair. There, there, she said. It'll be okay now. He continued to strike his own face, bruising and bloodying himself. Pandora found her like that, hovering over him, smiling as she watched him suffer, trapped in the nightmare of hate and self-judgment. Candy, she commanded angrily, what are you doing? Candy barely looked up. She shrugged absently. Practicing? She offered an explanation. You don't need any practice, Pandora said in chastisement. Now end this. Its damned bleating is going to draw attention. Candy rose, standing considerably taller than Pandora now. She seemed to have no urgency to obey Pandora, her elder now only in technicality. I can't stop it, she said with a smile. I'm not actually doing anything. Pandora stomped toward her. End it, she growled. Candy pouted, looking very much like the petulant child she so recently was. Arms folded defiantly. She turned from Pandora, nose high and lower lip jutting forward. Pandora stepped toward her, and Candy braced herself for Pandora's punishment. But the older girl bent, reaching into Candy's basket on the ground beside her, and withdrew the long scissors she kept there, glaring at the young girl. Pandora jerked quickly and drove the end of the shears through Tuttle's neck and out the other side, covered in blood and flesh. He fell back with a gurgle his blood pooling around his head and slowly drained down the slight decline in the alley to a sewer grate nearby. His body continued to twitch as the psychological torture Candy brought upon him lingered until his very end. Turning abruptly to Candy, Pandora said, I told you to put the creature down. Candy wanted to ignore her, to demonstrate her newfound independence and courage, but could not help but defend herself. What does it matter? she retorted. They do not matter to us. They are worthless. You know better than that. There's a plan. What plan? Candy snapped. To find a savior from Malifaux in one of these animals? Pandora, too, grew impatient. Control yourself. Not out loud. Not here. Why? She rolled her eyes as she said. Are we in danger? She pointed at Pandora angrily. Like you've never done what I just did, have you, Dora? Pandora's features softened. You're right, she said more gently. I know. It is frustrating to think we need them. We have dominion over each of the humans we confront. And I hate them here as much as you do. Then why go through this? 
Why pretend? I hate them! Hate them! She screamed, purposefully loud enough to carry beyond the alley and into the ears of the pedestrians nearby. Pandora did not care, and she looked away, down at the box she held absently at her side. We did this. We let them loose. We must fix it. The others believe we need a human. One strong enough to do what we may not be able to do alone. The others? Zoraida, Lilith. Then why aren't they here in Malifaux looking? We're endangering ourselves every day. She stomped and her stocking fell further down her calf. Her hands were balled fists at her side. Pandora smiled, reminded that despite her new physical maturity, she was still every bit a young girl. Neither realized it, but Lilith looked down upon them, hidden behind the thick stones of a chimney on the building beside them. She remained perfectly still, making no noise to alert the girls of her presence. She waited for Pandora to gain control of the young girl, to assert her authority, lest Candy realize her growth brought her even greater potential than she realized. Instead, Pandora drew Candy to her in an embrace. She spoke quietly, but Lilith heard her distinctly. Pandora said, We do our part. Until we can determine our own path. Candy hugged her back. Pandora said, You are what you are. A woe of lost innocence. Of course you must do what you are meant to do. This simple creature, she said with a motion to the corpse of Brian Tuttle, surely wasn't strong enough for our uses. Just follow the plan until we can be free to do what we are both meant to do. And don't call too much attention to ourselves. Lilith's teeth ground quietly from her hiding place. Candy was not the only problem to fix. Apparently. The audio chair keeps on coming in just a moment, but now the news. We have had sightings since December 1st. You know, the day when the festive season starts, not before and not after, of a bizarre creature roaming townships. In particular, this creature or possible family of creatures prefers alpine areas. I know what you're thinking. Hold up there, announcer. Malifaux has loads of horrifying creatures. What makes this one so special? It is in the news, and I am saying it, I reply. Now hush. Interruptions are rude, and cause me to talk in third person. The creature is said to have long and matted fur with the horns of a goat. Like all law-fearing monsters, it usually strikes at nights, predominantly taking children. There is one reoccurring theme to this creature's method. All of the children it has taken were in the possession of a carved wooden mask. People have tried to catch the creature, Parents have run into rooms after hearing noises, only to be greeted by a mess and the sound of far-off rattling chains. Further investigations have found trails of birch branches leading away from the scene, but these trail off once they reach forests or foothills, 
At this time of year, a supposed happy time of year, it appears that nobody is safe. Our final story for today, it's Revelations. Revelations October 12 The large wrench slipped from the bolt as it suddenly gave way. Rose Croshaw gasped as her knuckles struck the metal plating of the copper turbine. Damn it, she cursed in a rather unladylike fashion. She winced and jerked away from the breach portal support arms that loomed above her. She spat one profanity after the other as she squeezed the gaping wound. Blood flowed through her fingers and dripped upon her overalls. The bright blue disk of light that spanned nearly thirty feet popped, and the droning hum momentarily ceased. The light emanating from the breach winked out of existence, too, showing the rising hills to the north of Malifaux through the thick metal arms that typically held the strange portal in place. Then it came right back, humming and buzzing in that otherwise endless drone, opaque and swirling with eddies of blue and white. If, like Rose Croshaw, a person were to look upon the portal with welding goggles on, they not only preserved their eyesight, but they might be able to see the strangely swirling and faint movement of ghostly silver figures, smoke-like and gossamer. Wearing such dark lenses obscured the images of the breach, too, making it difficult to describe what it looked like with any surety. As descriptions of the strange gateway rarely agreed, most people merely left it as blue and so damn bright it didn't make the sun blink. The pain in her knuckles subsided slowly as her own special and secret ability quickly pulled the flesh together again. New skin formed over the wound, pink and soft, and the throbbing pain still coursed through her, sending strange and uncomfortable waves down her spine. She shivered with each heartbeat. Anasalia Keris, a special contractor for the Miners and Steamfitters Union, approached. She asked, Everything okay? Croshaw wrapped a greasy rag around the wound, now well on its way to being fully healed. Oh, yes, she said. No problem, really. Didn't know anyone was near. They both looked at the other steam fitters working well within earshot. It was enough to puzzle Karis, and she made no effort to mask her curiosity. She said, Must have been a good crack at the knuckle. It's bleeding out pretty good. But Croshaw knew the bleeding had miraculously ceased. Let me see it. You'll probably need to see the medic. No, no, Rose said, as unemotionally as possible. It's really nothing. I just got excited. The wound would be fully healed in minutes, and the very last person she wanted to know about her was Karis. That woman was a bloodhound, and she had been meeting with just about everyone of prominence in Malifaux though interrogation was probably a more appropriate term. She needed to shift attention. This damn breach just won't stabilize, she said, gently tapping the metal frame with her great wrench. Was it the derailment this past summer? Croshaw shrugged, though both women knew it had nothing to do with the derailment. They tell me it was the event. I'm just a steam fitter. They don't tell me nothing. Just, it's broke. Fix it. Karis was shrewd and not easily led down the wrong path. She knew at once there was more to the young MSU girl than she wanted known. Karis pushed, saying, 
ought to assign a steam fitter to the breech though it's a pretty unique construct to sustain ether from no living source to hold open a portal between worlds most the electricity isn't it rose croshaw grew more anxious and wiped her brow with her filthy rag putting more grease and oil upon her already dirty face than the perspiration it removed yeah but these boilers over here drive the small turbines that create the electricity her voice was quiet actually not many of us know about the electricity and how it works i just spend too much time puzzling it out i suppose Karis understood its operation, of course. If rumors were to be believed, the intimidating woman could likely stabilize the construct holding open the breach herself. Maybe that was why she'd come out to the portal. With that apparatus you were working on when the wrench slipped, it had nothing to do with the steam fitting or conversion to electricity. In fact, and Croshaw gulped, it's part of the converter and sustains the ether modulation, isn't it? Croshaw wiped her forehead again. I just, I just had a hunch. I should have sent for an engineer, she admitted. You should have sent for Victor Ramos, or me. Sorry, it won't happen again. The white wall of light flickered again, and for a moment blinked out of existence with a pop. Crackling electricity suddenly flared around the sustaining arms, arcing bolts between them until the breach reopened with a gentle rumble of thunder. If they could not stabilize the breach, whole fortunes might be lost in shipping delays. More importantly, although no one ever made any mention of it, the fear of the breach closing as it had a hundred years prior was as great a fear to each settler in Malifaux as encountering a razor-spine rattler. Small tendrils of electricity crawled over the armature as Karis took the wrench from Rose Croshaw. She didn't take her eyes from the breach, although it was blinding. And she said, Looks like you didn't get cut that badly after all. Rose realized she'd removed the rag from her hand to wipe her brow and returned it to a pocket in her overalls, forgetting about the wound. Her blood had spilled on the ground before her and even stained her pant leg. Yet in the span of their discourse, the wound had fully healed. Get back to work, Karis said. And Rose thankfully withdrew and would spend the rest of the morning avoiding the intimidating MSU contractor. Both women knew they'd be speaking again. Karis took the wrench and worked on the same apparatus that Rose Croshaw had been. After all, the frequency modulation was clearly out of sync. She was a patient woman, but was anxious to find out how the young steam fitter could know about such advanced mechanisms without any training, or at the least, without having seen any of the engineering drawings of the full device, so intricate that only a handful of people might comprehend its basic operation. Most important, however, was stabilizing the breach. No one wanted to be trapped in Malifaux. They sought domination over this world, to conquer it. But an inability to rely upon resources from Earth would lead to their inevitable downfall. Molly Squidpidge bent her face against the wind that tore into her pallid flesh, biting with frozen sleet. She could not be hurt by it, and barely felt what was likely a bitter cold. Her arms and face were bare to the elements, but she pushed through it as she might have when she still lived. Seamus had chastised her for such behaviour even recently. She assured him that she wanted only to blend in with the humans, to not draw attention unnecessarily. Seamus said she was clever. She drew enough attention. 
Although her level of decomposition was markedly different than the dry, desiccated, and deteriorating flesh of Seamus Otherbelt's, her flesh was still deathly pallid, and her eyes were too flat, conveying her deathly state as well. Is it cold? The head of Philip Tumors asked from the crook of her arm where she carried it, cradled like a child. She held it against her breast, so he was reluctant to say anything. It wasn't that he necessarily enjoyed her breast pressed against his cheek, as he couldn't exactly feel that either. He just didn't want to be thrust back into the damnable sack that was his typical abode in transportation. At least they had upgraded it to soft velvet instead of that infernal burlap. No, Molly said as the sleet pelted them. It's not too cold. The burlap itched, he had complained. You can't feel it, they argued. It smells like old potatoes, he retorted. You cannot smell either, they quipped. It still has bugs crawling around, he offered. They came with you, not the sack. Still, Seamus bought him a nice velvet bag to shut him up. Tumors didn't know why Molly had pulled him out, but it was nice to look around, even if he sometimes rolled toward her and the fabric of her dress was all he could see. They moved easily through the dark alleys. "'taking a twisted path around a dilapidated and abandoned building "'adjacent to the quarantine zone. "'Few people walked openly in this dangerous section of the city on a normal night, "'but with the stinging cold, the two were alone. "'Almost there,' she said to the head. "'She conveyed little emotion in her speech or mannerisms, "'but her voice remained strangely lyrical and soothing even in its monotone. "'Where?' he asked. "'Quarantine zone.' He knew that. He should have asked why they were going to the quarantine zone, and he nearly did, but he bit his tongue. She might stick him back in his bag if he got too chatty. The guild had secured the zone well, and had few illegal trespasses into the sector. Molly, however, was soon standing upon a mound of debris of broken stone and wood several city blocks in. If the guild were patrolling the area, Molly demonstrated no anxiety about standing out in the open. She turned him so that he could see, but the wind and freezing rain limited his sight. The guard post, she said. His eyes adjusted to the darkness, and he slowly focused upon the burnt remains of a wall and the lower stonework that remained, dark from the fire that had consumed the upper wooden structure. The rain began to turn to thick flakes of snow. He could see the strain of fire around the ruins. The cobblestones near the guard post remains were blackened as well, they faced the city, her back against the heart of the quarantine zone. He could see the line around the perimeter where the fence had been, just several months earlier. The guild had moved that line several blocks further in, expanding the quarantine zone as it encroached upon the city. Molly. Plague. It lived here. Tumors looked around, shifting his eyes best he could to see whatever it was he was meant to see. For once... He was silent. She said, They burned it. To stop it. Guards in innocence with the disease lured to the plague. A guild officer burned the guard post and all the victims he found here. He meant to burn the plague so it would not spread. He was clever. But he failed. Tumors added, I overheard Nicodem's conversation with Seamus afterward. The plague mob attacked this observatory. Why? She did not respond. Instead, Molly turned. 
facing the heart of the quarantine zone. Rising before them was a great mound of bodies, piled high and haphazardly. Hundreds of bodies were dumped without compassion in a pile that spread before them and loomed significantly above Molly. It was wide, and she had to turn slowly so that he could take it all in. Damnation, Tumas said aghast. This is not where the plague was stopped. It is where it began. Where the plague tyrant lost control of it. In the slums bordering the guard post, plague lingered. Molly went silent and the two surveyed the mound whose circumference spanned at least fifty feet. The plagued pit, she said, meaning the pile. It's more like a hill than a pit, Toomers offered. It is a pit. Deep. She was silent again, which was her custom. None of Seamus Bell's spoke save Molly, and she only did so reluctantly. Speech typically reduced her to a coughing and spasming fit in which she spat out blood, bile, or mucus, sometimes all at once. When she spoke again, Tumors could not believe that she sustained a long discourse. Uninterrupted by her violent expulsion of bodily fluids that simply would not dry out, like the other girls, she said, One citizen avoided another. Hardly any neighbor troubled about others. Relatives never visit. Such terror has been struck into the hearts of men and women that brother has abandoned brother, and the uncle his nephew, and the sister her brother, and even the wife her husband. What is even worse and nearly incredible is that fathers and mothers may refuse to see and tend their children. Molly didn't know how she knew all this. Like many things, she just knew. Tumors saw their faces calm in death. In fact, as you looked from one face to another in that vast mound of bodies, they each looked too calm, too accepting of the death that was visited upon them, no faces frozen in terror or anguish or remorse. It was like they expected death, and could not resist it, and did not try. Such was the multitude of corpses brought to the churches every day, and almost every hour, that there was not enough consecrated ground to give them burial especially since they wanted to bury each person in the family grave, according to the old custom. The cemeteries were unable to accommodate them. They found it fitting to dig the plague pit here, at the guard post remains, and dump the bodies where they believe it began. They dug this pit where they buried the bodies by hundreds. Here they stowed them away like bales in the hold of a ship, and covered them with a little earth until the whole trench was full. Her voice was beautiful even when she spoke of these horrific conditions. It had a strange echo that reminded him of dreaming. Why are we here? Tumas asked her. They may come for these bodies. Nicodem, or the others. To raise them. Make an army of the plague dead to wage their war. Can it be stopped? Thomas Colburn had been in Malifaux for four years. He had come across the breach in the very first wave as a prominent young guild guardsman. With no family ties to hold him back, he enthusiastically volunteered for extra duty and special assignments. With such passion and drive, he quickly rose through officer ranks and set his sights upon the elite divisions within the guild. He had a personal fascination with the walking dead. His focus upon the death marshals, was interestingly circumvented by Samuel Hopkins himself, 
He requested Officer Colburn specifically for a mission to the Western Badlands, despite the dozens of volunteers that had stepped forward for the assignment. He scratched the thick stubble on his neck, limping into Malifaux and spat beside the checkpoint gate, a superstition none of the earliest pioneers forgot, and dragged his bum leg back into the city. He adjusted his wide-brimmed hat, his thick oil duster, and the black patch across his eye. He was nervous, he had to admit. Since that incident in the Badlands three years earlier, he had not been back in the Guild Enclave. He felt that the guardsmen at the checkpoint followed his every move, but he no longer recognized the man among them, and knew he was all but forgotten among those that might still be in the ranks. Malifaux chewed up and spat out too many young people eager to prove their mettle, and everyone understood that it was foolish to get close to anyone in the Guild. There was little compassion, little friendship. He tipped his hat to the sentry at the gateway fences that separated the guild's official buildings from the general populace. As he predicted, they stopped him from limping past. Just a minute there, mister, one said, stepping around the wooden post beside the small checkpoint building, holding up his hand while the other rested on his holstered peacebringer. I'm retired second lieutenant Thomas Colburn, he said sternly to the guardsman. The two guards looked skeptical and studied the broken man before them dragging a leg, eye-patched with a jagged scar that ran the length of his entire face. Reaching for his credentials held on the inside of his dark duster, the lower two digits were missing from his hand, and a purple scar ran the length of his palm where half the hand had been torn away. They examined his paperwork, confirming his sincerity. One said, Sorry, sir, didn't recognize you. No, suppose not. Been out of the city for some time. Out of the city? They thought he must be pulling their leg. What do you do with yourself out there, Mr. Colburn? The mister stung him a bit. No officer's title. Rancher. Raised cattle. Just north of Haraways. Not too far into the wilds, of course, he said, supporting their supposition that a broken man like him should not be off on his own outside of guild protection. Okay, cowboy, what brings you back in? I need to see Officer Hopkins as soon as possible. They laughed. Hopkins? You want to see Hopkins? Colburn straightened himself the best he could, but the old wound to his lower back made it difficult to stand straight without wincing. Stand aside now, Private, he said, and moved to enter the conclave. The guardsman stopped him. Private? New regulations. Can't just saunter in off the streets and have a meeting with the likes of Samuel Hopkins. I'm an officer in good standing, he said sternly. I'll find someone that can address me properly. In active duty, like I said. Different regulations than when you were around, I expect. Colburn ground his teeth. He hadn't come back to Malifaux to be turned away so easily. We'll send your request up the pike. They'll let you know when they can see you. Another guard, hidden from his view behind the checkpoint station, said quietly to another, You haven't even seen Hopkins in months. Don't we need a report request to see him? They had Colburn wait. Soon they were escorting him through the courthouse building adjacent to the witch hunter holding facility, where he intended to go all along, leaving him sitting in a stiff wooden chair for too long. His good leg tingled as the circulation was cut off, and he began to fidget uncomfortably. He had taken his pistol, of course, and his typical habits of adjusting his hat, his eye patch, and holster was so ingrained in his movements that he jumped in brief panic every several minutes when his hand fell on a dead space at his hip. 
He lived on his own out there, and his gun was at his side every minute, including sleep. Having it removed was as painful as losing half his hand. I understand you've come to speak with Officer Samuel Hopkins. A smooth voice emanated from the darkness surrounding the outer edges of the room. Colburn could not discern the speaker, remaining there in the shadows, just beyond the dim light of the kerosene lamp suspended above the table he sat behind. Colburn had not even noticed the man enter the room, and he jumped at the voice. I think I made that clear enough, Colburn said. Don't need to talk to no lawyer. Need to talk to a stalker. and want high enough so a job will get done and not get mixed up in some paper shuffling. The man in the shadow stepped forward, so that his lower legs were within the yellow light of the lamp, yet his face remained hidden in the shadows. He wore the fine leggings and stark white stockings of a lord from back across the breach. You will find that I am no mere lawyer, the man said in that low voice. But I might understand your sentiment. Colburn fidgeted uncomfortably, though the man before him was little more than a dandy by his dress and mannerisms, and a bit too fragile-looking. Something in his demeanour struck Colburn with fear that rippled down his back, though. It perplexed him. I'm Lucius Matterson, Mr. Colburn. You might have heard that I, too, appreciate getting a job done. He had heard of the mysterious secretary. Few had ever seen him. Colburn had to wonder if his various encounters with prominent figures in Malifaux were a blessing or a curse. I understand you're here to speak with Officer Hopkins. He could not see the secretary's face shrouded in the shadows around him, yet he still looked away. I see in your file, Mr. Colburn, that Hopkins spoke highly of you. Quite. Thank you, he said reluctantly. What brings you here, looking for Hopkins? Something beyond his understanding was afoot, and he realized he was only accidentally caught up in it. Some conflict between this imposing figure and Hopkins. There's a problem. Out on the range. I do not see how this concerns Hopkins. Maybe it doesn't. He had to agree. He raised his head to muster the courage to stare into the dark silhouette before him. But it's odd. Supernatural. Even in Malifaux. Something's changed. I do not see in your file how you became an expert on such matters. That's why I wanted to see Hopkins. He'd believe me. He'd get the job done. Lucius Matterson remained still and silent before him, and his discomfort grew. He fought to convince the governor's secretary to take his plea seriously, and at least send a contingent of inspectors out to his ranch. By the end of his tale of his own animals growing belligerent beyond reason, Matterson ordered Colburn to lead him back, to show him the behavioral anomaly. There was a hint in Madison's tone that if Colburn had not accurately conveyed the true nature of the state of affairs there, he would bear a terrible price at misleading him. Lucius listened intently to Colburn's tale. He couldn't have known that conditions on his ranch would have grown so dire in the time it had taken to journey to the city and meet with the secretary. At that moment, back on Colburn's ranch, one of the three ranch hands he had hired remained alive though he cowered in the corner of the stable, pinned against the barn wall 
and unable to reach the fence where he might have crawled under. Nor could he reach the open barn door. There would be no escape through the barn anyway. All of the cattle were in there in greater numbers, clearly more comfortable in the dark than out in the light. One of the steers came closer, and he shrank further against the wall, trembling and whimpering. Its eyes were wide, and the dark pupils constricted, showing more whites than they should. Although physically impossible for a cow to growl, when the beast lowed it was a guttural and throaty reverberation that sounded more like a growl than any lowing the hand had ever heard before. It made a deep and throaty moo, and its lips were pulled away from the two rows of flat teeth. Blood dripped from around them, and it chomped more like a wolf than a bovine would chew from side to side. Thin strands of flesh dangled wet and glistening from between its back teeth. Its lips pulled away from the teeth, crimson and slick with blood. The bovine stalked him, assessing him as prey. Another big steer, more confident than the first, lowered its head. Eyes just as fierce and insane with the thirst for blood, and charged the cowering ranch hand. He screamed and covered his face with his forearms against the impending doom. The first steer knocked it aside as it charged, and it crashed into the wall beside the adult rancher. It lowed strangely at the other, regaining its footing, and they squared off, each growling a deep-throated warning to the other. Before the ranch hand's eyes, the first steer mouth still dripping blood and frothing saliva, shook and quivered. It stomped the ground hard with its forelegs like a tantrum. Abruptly, bony spines, long and flat like great arrowheads, burst from its back along each vertebra. It howled, the noise echoing throughout the valley. An additional bony spike burst from each of its shoulder blades. The other cattle around the corral went through a similar transformation. The two stalking him were enraged. In a flash, they charged at one another, howling as their heads knocked violently against each other's, their long horns slashing madly at the neck and shoulders in possessive rage. More cattle circled the fray and charged the rancher, desperate for his flesh. They slammed against one another, beating their heads in explosive cracks of bone on bone. As their blood flowed, they began to turn on one another not just to exhibit dominance over their human prey, but to devour themselves. Soon several saw the weakness and exhaustion of another, and quickly had it toppled. They made short work of it, tearing its throat open with their long horns. Their faces were covered in blood from injuries and gorging. Their archer hoped to slink away from the carnage, to find refuge beyond the sturdy gates of the corral. As he fled, eyes on the insane massacre, he stopped short when the heavy puff of breath just above him fell upon his neck. He looked up into the face of one of his favorite animals on the ranch. An old boy, gentle as a kitten, always the first to comply with the rancher's herding. It huffed again, then it raised its great head to the sky, crying in madness in the odd lowing that sounded much more like a wolf's howl. It was the last thing the ranch hand heard. The cattle consumed the flesh of each of the ranchers, but turned on one another before they could finish, enraged by their desperate thirsts for blood. Nearby carrion birds descended upon the bloodbath, eager to take advantage of the cattle's distraction for one another to pick at the visceral remains in the open. As they ate, 
One vulture, gorging upon the flesh dangling from a ranchan's rib, snapped at another, suddenly desperate to have the meat for itself. They quarrelled and tore at one another, and soon more birds that had descended to the irresistible feast found themselves striking at birds or cattle, desperate to have any flesh, any blood. By the time Colburn and Lucius Matteson, his face hidden behind a full face mask, could return to the ranch to examine the strange and territorial behavior of the livestock, the sound of the screeching and howling had subsided. The barn and corral was awash with blood and partially devoured carcasses. The dirt could not absorb the blood that pooled among the remains. Lucius was not a man taken easily by surprise. Witnessing the horrific carnage before him, he pulled his horse to a halt and surveyed the horrible scene. What the hell? he whispered. His horse fidgeted. Lucius pulled it away from the ranch, and it huffed with a guttural reverberation in its throat that sounded strangely like a growl. The horses of the guardsmen accompanying them snapped at one another. The great hanging tree loomed above Leviticus, and he stood, bent at his midsection, looking not too dissimilar from the gnarled and ancient tree that rose in mockery of life itself. It bore no leaves, and the bark peeled, but its roots ran deep, and sap still flowed when the tree was tapped, proving it still lived on, no doubt feeding on the bones of those that had been buried around it. Leviticus stood in the depths of the great tree's early morning shadow, peering down the long sloping valley to Malifaux below. The young girl, Alice, sat upon a square tombstone behind him, staring not at the city, but the Governor-General's mansion that loomed beyond the graveyard, across the road. She was contemplating how difficult it would be to take out the guards assigned there and make off with the fortune she was sure it housed. "'Do you feel it, girl?' he asked, his voice dry and taut. Alice said, "'Why, the cold? Yeah, it's making my skin crawl.' "'No, not the cold.' The feeling of inevitability. Does it feel like boredom? If so, then yes, I feel it. He chuckled, and the long white brows above his narrow eyes lifted. Not that, either. Can you sense that something's not right? Oh, you mean how you've kept me out all night looking down at the city, and at a bunch of houses out beyond the city, too, and now I'm tired? I agree. It's not right. He thought she'd be able to sense it like he did. Her arm was not the only part of her that had been replaced. Wires and Mechanica ran deep into her, and attached at various points to her spine and up into her brain. He thought that by now she'd be closer to death, to sense it more like he did. He could not teach her about it as he'd expected. She was far too willful, too attached to life to feel the barrier of death pressing upon her. He could feel the buzz in his prosthetic leg and arm of brass, copper, and iron. But deep within his chest, where his heart had once been, he felt it most. Death, he said flatly. It's all around. Good observation. We're in the cemetery, under the tree. There's death all around, all right. Why must you be so willfully disobedient? he asked. But he loved her combative nature. Her passion was so starkly contrasted against his stoic and disinterested demeanor. Why is your doohickey glowing? 
she asked. He lifted his staff so that the green stone attached to the end of it was directly before his face. It glowed faintly. He nodded and sighed. It usually does this when I'm about to die, he said casually. Because bad things happen. <laughs>